Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. And we like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. Okay, Tim. So who are we going to have a conversation with in this episode? Well, it's Jonah Berger, the marketing Ooh. professor yeah, from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the internationally best-selling author of Contagious and Invisible Influence. Pretty, pretty damn good books, uh-huh. yeah. uh, FYI. Uh, we dialed up Jonah to chat with him about his most recent book, The Catalyst, because it addresses persuasion in a fresh and novel way. Yeah, so The Catalyst takes aim at the traditional idea of persuading people by pushing them with more information or more logic, and it turns it on its head. In the book, Jonah suggests that the acronym of REDUCE, REDUCE stands for Reactance, Endowment, Distance, Uncertainty, and Corroborating Evidence. I even said that word right, Tim. Well, I mean, there you I go. No, I just like noting that. Very, very good. <laughs> and it's really the foundation for how someone who's really good at persuasion can get it done. And he calls these ways of lowering barriers the catalyst. Yeah, right, Kurt. So, uh, just so you know, we were pretty crunched on time with our conversation with Jonah. So, we didn't really dive too deep into all the elements, but we made sure that we got to some of them. And of course, we talked about what's on his playlist right now. So with that, we hope that you'll enjoy the things that we did cover. And before we launch into that, I just want to say we got a really nice review from ES Psych in the United States recently. Oh, that's so, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, Kurt, because ES Psych wrote, and I'm quoting here, Tim and Kurt have such nice chemistry between them as well as with their guests that I don't even realize that I'm learning as I listen. It's just like I'm part of a really fun, really interesting conversation. I love the growing session as well. Always a great recap with a different spin, close quote. And I think that for growing, I think that the author meant grooving, but (laughs) I just wanted to read it as it was. I, I agree, but but Tim, maybe we ought to have a growing session. We, <laughs> we, we could talk about the ways that we grow from the knowledge and the insight that we gain with each of these sessions, you know? Or, or we could grow in another way. Like, I know I've gotten a lot fatter since starting the show, so we could grow in that manner as well. I think it would be a big growing session. Which means growing your wardrobe. You know, there's all kinds of growth things that could come out of that. But maybe we should just stick to behavioral science. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Um, So with that, please, let's raise a glass of counterintuitive persuasion and get your groove on with our conversation with Jonah Berger. Jonah Berger, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Uh, We're going to start with a speed round. And how about if we just find out whether you would prefer to have dinner with your favorite sports star or dinner with your favorite musician? Wow. Uh, I guess uh, I would go with my favorite sports star. Okay. And and who who might that be? <laughs> you know, uh, the Redskins were recently playing, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they've done a lot better than uh, expected. So I would I would go with I would go with their uh, their new coach uh, to oh. find out sort of what he's done to turn the team around. I See, now that really that that's actually, actually really cool, right? You're you're looking at that at the coach part of this. All right, uh, second speed round question: Travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Once we get back to vacation travel, <laughs> uh, definitely a fixed itinerary. I have found uh, that a fixed itinerary. Decrease 
increases the worriness on vacation. You know where you're going. Uh, you don't have to think about stuff, which is what I like okay. to do on vacation. So I'm going to go with fixed itinerary. All right. Cool. Fantastic. Would you prefer to learn a new language or a new instrument? Oh, definitely a new instrument. I'm, ba- I'm, ba- I'm bad at both. I'm terrible at language. Uh, not that musical, but I would, so I'd definitely go with instrument. Okay, awesome. Well, but you you study language. I mean, that's a lot of your recent research has been on language. It is. It is. You know, what's interesting is I'm very interested in how we can extract insight from language, language as a corpus that we can learn from uh, in terms of my own personal abilities uh, in in foreign language uh, or even uh, American English language. Uh, Not that I'm particularly good at those things, but I'm very interested in how we can use it uh, as a source of data and information. Wow. Yeah, that's that's okay. great. All right. Final speed round question. All right. So if you're trying to change someone, uh, is it better to, to do it by pushing them all the facts on a subject or trying to simply reduce the, bound, uh, the, the boundaries for them to make the change themselves? Uh, that's an easy one. Uh, reducing the barriers, uh, barriers and figuring yep. out how to help them uh, help you is, is certainly key. We, we often go with pushing and it often doesn't work. Right, which is one of the key pieces from from your your new book, The Catalyst, right, where you you talk about this. So, can for our listeners who have not read The Catalyst, can you just give a really thirty thousand foot overview about what they should be looking to take away from that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the key insight, uh, both for me and, and hopefully the readers of this book, um, you know, I work with a lot of companies and organizations. So everything from big Fortune 500s to small startups. And at the core, everyone has something that they want to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, if you're in marketing or you're in sales, you want to change the customer or the client's mind. If you're a leader, you want to transform organizations. If you're an employee, you want to change your bosses or your colleagues' minds. You know, startups want to change industries. Nonprofits want to change the world. But at the core, change is really hard, right? As you mentioned, sort of, you know, often we push and we pressure, we control. We think if we just give more facts, more reasons, more information, people come around uh, and often they don't. Often they do the exact opposite uh, of what we want them to do. Uh, And so what I started to do is try to figure out, well, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds uh, and and drive action? And we found that there is. Uh, and at the core, it's all about identifying what the barriers are to change uh, and and mitigating them. You know, if you if you think about it for a moment, you know, if there's a chair in the middle of a room uh, and you want to get it to go, you often think, okay, I'll push that chair where I, I want it to go. Uh, that works really well for chairs, uh, as most of us know. That doesn't that doesn't work so well for people. Um, and the reason why uh, is that people come up with all the reasons why they don't want to do what you want them to do. You know, when pushed, people often don't just go along, uh, they push back. And so after, you know, a couple decades now worth of research in this space and interviewing a variety of folks in all sorts of different domains, what's very clear is that great change agents, great catalysts, people that change minds and drive action, they do things a little differently. They don't sit there and they go, oh, what else could I do to get someone to change. Instead, they take a simple step back and they say, well, why hasn't this person changed already? What's stopping them? What's getting in the way? What are those barriers or those obstacles that are preventing them from doing what, what I want? And how can I mitigate them? And in, in doing so, drive that person to change. Well, you know, speaking of uh, wondering, you, you, you say in the book, uh, I started wondering if there was a better way than sort of push, 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 right? And and this is one of the parts that, that Kurt and I find particularly fascinating is that you make it look so easy to ask that question. <laughs> you know, right? how, how, how do you come to that? What, you know, how do you come to that question? 
Well, I'll say two things. First of all, I will certainly say, uh, you know, in thinking about this book in my own personal life, not as a writer, but applying this book, um, uh, one of the reasons we focus on push so often is we're very egocentric, right? We all know <laughs> yeah. what the outcome is that we want to achieve. We, you know, we want our spouse to do this. We want our child to do that. We want our boss to do the other thing. We want the client to do this. We know what we want. We have a very clear picture uh, of what we want because we have access to it. We have a less clear picture of that other person, the organization, the people, the group, and why they aren't changing. And so it's certainly easier to default to what we want, right? And certainly easier to default to saying, well, if the other person only saw and had access to the information that I have access to, they would come around. And so I think that's why we have barrier blindness. That's why um, that's why it happens. Um, but in terms of sort of uh, you know how I got to this conclusion, it was interesting. So my first book, uh, Contagious, came out in 2013. And it sort of changed my life. Uh, before that, I was, you know, 95% teaching and research with a little bit of consulting and speaking here and there. Uh, and I started getting a lot of calls from a lot of companies, organizations saying, hey, we want a, a product to catch on. We want this service to get more word of mouth. We want content to go viral. You know, come help us out. Uh, I learned a lot about different industries, but I also got to see how different people did things. Mm. Uh, you know, what made great salespeople really uh, effective? What made great leaders uh, transformational? What startup founders did that helped their startups succeed and others did that, you know, led their startups to fail? And in researching this book, I also got a chance to move beyond those traditional domains, right? You know, talking to folks that deal with much bigger problems than, than business people deal on a daily basis, you know, talking to hostage negotiators and substance abuse counselors and, um, you know, great parenting experts. And what I started to see again and again was the same principles were coming up in different places. So the same thing that, you know, a great, uh, you know, I don't know, consultant who was really good at selling projects was talking about actually had a lot in common to what parenting experts might have been talking about. And they were talking about in different ways, right? Parents are focused on, parenting experts are focused on getting your kids to, you know, brush their teeth or put their clothes on. And, and the consultant is focused on selling projects and getting client buy-in. And they were using different language. But the underlying principles, the underlying psychology of why it was working uh, was very much the same. And so, uh, you know, I started starting pieces in different places and eventually pulled them together in a framework that became the book. Um, and I think it's a really powerful toolkit if we take a step back and we're willing to look at sort of, well, why things aren't working, we can get a lot of insight and, and make change easier. Well, and can, can you go over that framework? Because it's, it's, it's reduces the, the little... Uh, monocle that you have to, to do it about reactance, endowment, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. And so I, 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 we don't have time to get into all of those, but maybe just a really highlight of each of those and then maybe dive into to reactance because I think that one is one that people don't necessarily think about a lot, even though it's a really powerful uh, barrier for, for, for people. So Sure. So the quick summary is, is reactance is the idea if, if you push people, uh, they push back. Uh, endowment is the E. So we start with an R reduce, uh, and reduce uh, R is reactance. E is endowment. The yep. basic idea is people are attached to what they're doing uh, already and so how to ease that. Uh, the D is for distance. Uh, when we ask for too much, uh, we ask for something too far from where people are at the moment, they tend to ignore us. Uh, the U is uncertainty. Uh, whenever we're trying to change something, not only do we have to get people to let go of the past, but approach uh, the new thing. And new things always involve uncertainty. Uh, and the last is corroborating evidence. We often need more sources of proof uh, to drive action and, and change minds. And so um, you asked for sort of diving into uh, reactance. You know, I think a good example of reactance comes from a, a very unusual situation uh, that some of us might be familiar with. So a few years ago, a Tide 
uh, owned by Procter and Gamble, uh, had a problem. Uh, and so uh, Tide makes these things called Tide Pods. You may be aware of them. Uh, you probably throw them uh, in the laundry um, to make laundry faster and easier. Basically, little detergent pods you chuck in the, the machine. Um, they mean you don't have to get laundry uh, detergent sticky and on your hands, on the counter. You don't have to measure anything. You just sort of set it and forget it. It's done. And so they released these things. They thought it could take a big chunk of the over billion dollar laundry market. They spend a hundred thousand, uh, sorry, hundred million dollars uh, on marketing. Uh, they release them. They're doing okay, but then there's a problem, uh, which is that people are eating them. Uh, and so you're probably sitting there going, well, what do you mean eating Tide Pods? Aren't they filled with chemicals? Why would why would people eat them? No, no, they, they are filled with chemicals. Um, but there was a funny video online saying they looked good enough to eat. Um, uh, you know, so they're co so colorful and, and beautiful. Um, people started joking about it. Suddenly, people start taking it seriously. Um, and now teens, mostly teens, are challenging one another uh, to eat detergent. It was called the Tide Pod Challenge. Okay. Now, imagine you're a Tide executive uh, in this situation. You're sitting there going, uh, wow, we shouldn't need to tell people not to do this, but just in case we, we will, uh, we'll release an announcement saying, don't eat Tide Pods. Uh, and in case that's not enough, we'll hire a celebrity, uh, Rob Gronk Gronkowski, now of uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers fame, uh, to tell people not to eat Tide Pods, never do it, it's a bad idea, all, all those things. So they release these announcements, they release these public uh, service sort of uh, clips. They think that'll be the end of it. If you look at the data though, you see something really interesting. So it's sort of trending up. There's more attention to the Tide Pod Challenge uh, before they release this announcement. They're hoping the announcement will kill that interest. No one will be interested. They'll stop doing it. Uh, but in fact, the exact opposite happens. Uh, in the next week or two, interest in the Tide Pod Challenge shoots up uh, over 400%. Uh, visits to poison control go up as well. Two times the number of people come in with a related sort of issue than had in the two years prior. Essentially, a warning became a recommendation. Mm -hmm. Telling people not to do something made them uh, more likely to do it. And that's a silly example, um, uh, but I think it illustrates something much broader, uh, which is whether we're trying to get people not to do something or trying to get them to do something, uh, they often push back. They often do the exact opposite uh, of what we want them to. And, and the reason underneath that is, is this principle, as we talked about, called reactants. Essentially, people like to be in control. They like to feel like they have freedom and autonomy. Why did I buy this product? Why did I use this service? Why did I change the way I, I work at the office? Why did I do these things? I did them because I wanted to, because I thought it was a good idea. I'm in the driver's seat. I'm in control. But the challenge is that whenever we try to persuade someone, whenever we try to change their mind, whenever we try to shift the way that they're doing things, uh, we're often pushing them, which makes them feel like we're in control rather than them being in control. And because they feel like that, they're often less interested in doing what we came up with, right? They say, oh, well, that's what you want me to do, but because you want me to do it, I'm actually not going to do it. I'm gonna avoid doing what you suggested. It's almost as if people have an ingrained uh, anti-persuasion radar. Mm. I always think about it like a like a missile defense system or something that, that goes off when we sense that someone's trying to change our mind, right? And we engage in defensive measures. We uh, avoid or ignore them, which is certainly what happens with a telemarketer or a sales email, right? We just click delete. We you know leave the room uh, when there's uh, an ad that we don't want to watch or something along those lines. But even worse, sometimes people are listening. They seem like they're listening. But what they're really doing is counter-arguing. Mm. Yep, they're sitting there, they're shaking their head. Yeah, uh -huh, I understand. You're making a, a pitch in a meeting, you're trying to convince someone. They're shaking their head, yes, but what they're really sitting there is thinking about all the reasons why what you suggested won't work. 
why it will be too expensive, why it's difficult to integrate, why they don't want to do it. And so no wonder then after that meeting that they seem like they're interested, but they end up saying no. And so the key question then about React is how we reduce it, how we ease it, how we make people feel like they have freedom and control. Let me, let me pause there. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say we are shaking our heads, but we are listening, not trying to do, <laughs> the, the, the piece here. Um, th there's, there's two things. Actually, why don't you continue on how do we reduce reactants? And then I have a couple questions after that, just kind of going yeah. back on some stuff. So I think the, the key the key insight to me about reducing reactants uh, is to give people back some of that freedom and autonomy. Make them feel like they are in in control. Um, uh, and you know, someone said it very nicely. They're like, you know, you need to stop selling and encourage people to buy in. You need to stop persuading people and, and get them to persuade themselves. And I really like that way of thinking about it. Um, you might be sitting there going, well, how do you do that? That sounds really nice, but, but how do you do that? And so I talk about, I think, four or five strategies in the book. I'll mention maybe one or two here. You know, you know, an easy one um, yeah, is to do what I'll call providing a menu. And so often when we um, are trying to get people to do something, you know, say we're uh, uh, making a presentation, we're presenting a course of action, we say, I think you should do this. I think that we should start this new initiative. I think we should kill this old initiative. I think we should merge these two groups. I think we should um, you know, think about customer experience in this way, whatever it is. This is what I think that we should do. Um, and the challenge there, as we talked about, is when we present one option and we say, we like this, people are sitting there going, well, I don't. this is why I don't like it. These are the problems, all those sorts of things. So what great change agents, great catalysts do is they don't just give people one option and present one option. They give people multiple. They say, hey, I think we should do X or Y. Which do you think is better? And very cleverly, that subtly shifts the role of the listener. Now, rather than sitting there going, okay, well, let me think about all the reasons why I don't like what you suggested, we've given them a different job. Their job now is to figure out which of the two options that we suggested they like better. And because they're focused on which one they like better, they're much more likely to pick one at the end of that interaction, right? Um, and it's called providing a menu. You're not giving them infinite choices. You're not giving them 50, 100. You know, when you go to a restaurant, uh, they don't say pick whatever you want, right? They say, well, here's a menu. I've given you a choice set. Choose from within that choice set. But because it feels like it's real choice, people feel free and, 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 and autonomous to choose what, what they want. And so it gives people back some of that sense of, of freedom and control. It puts them in the driver's seat. It's guiding the path, but not prescribing the path, right? It's sort of putting up some guardrails that you're saying, well, you know, move between these things, but they don't focus on all the other things they could be doing because you've given them some options. You've allowed them to participate. And so I talk about that. I, I talk about um, asking rather than telling, right? The power of really asking questions rather than telling people what to do. Um, uh, again, involving them, allowing them to participate, allowing them to generate solutions or directions themselves um, that you can then come back to later uh, and say, okay, well, you know, you suggested we should do this. And so we're going to do that. It's a lot harder for them not to do what you said they suggested to do because they came up with it in the first place. Um, and so it's about really guiding their journey, allowing them to participate in the process. But um, uh, again, they're not the only one driving. You're not letting them do whatever they want to do. You're encouraging them to follow a certain course or set of courses of action, but within that, giving them freedom and autonomy, which makes them much more likely to go along. Yeah, that's uh, it's fascinating when you think about you, you know this idea that well, people, we're giving them information, but in fact, what they're doing is they're not looking at that information, they're pushing back on it. And so I love the ideas of giving them this ability to, to have a menu, to, to look at different things. But I do want to go back. You, you mentioned a couple things, and, and probably these are more statements than they are questions, but um, it was interesting when you talked about the Tide Pods and that they brought in, you know, Gronkowski, which it, in a typical uh 
you know, format, you would think, wow, that's really great because he's a, a positive messenger. And, and so if you apply the messenger effect, right, for those teenagers who look up to him, you would assume based upon that, that that probably has a, a powerful impact on that. But in fact, it actually backfired from what you, you know, from what the data showed and, and various different things. So I thought that was really fascinating that, yeah, these tied executives probably did what they thought was the right thing moving forward and maybe even using some behavioral science principles around that. But in fact, that wasn't the, the, the element that, that yeah. impacted That's it. That's a, a great question. And, you know, I agree that having a good messenger is better than having a bad messenger. I certainly agree with that, right? And, and you know, there's lots of research on, on that. And so, you know, having someone people look up to is better than having someone that they don't look up to. Um, that said, I, I still think the challenge is whether that's a person you look up to or not, the yeah. person's still telling you what to do or suggesting what you should do. And, um, uh, you know, none of us like feeling like someone else is telling us what to do. I mean, think about, you know, vaccines that we're dealing with now or, you know, masks um, as we were dealing and still dealing with now and recently. And, and the government sort of defaulted to the same old playbook of, you know, if we want people to do it, tell them to do it. If we want them not to do it, tell them not to do it. And, it, and, and that strategy makes sense from a sort of, you know, traditional, economic, rational actor sort of thing. We give people the information, they'll go along. But the problem is that the issue is not information. It, yeah. It's not that people are sitting there going, well, hey, if I just had the right information, you would change my mind. Because it's not about information. The barrier there is not lack of information. There's this great... Um, I talk about in the book, this great uh, campaign in Thailand, uh, it's anti-smoking campaign where they go up to smokers on the street uh, and they ask them, hey, can I have a light? Um, and you would expect smokers would say yes. In this case, all the smokers say no. They say no because the person who asked them for a light is like an eight or 10-year-old kid. And so they're saying, no, I'm not going to give you a light, eight or 10-year-old kid. They lecture the kid about all the reasons why smoking is a bad idea. You know, it's going to hurt your lungs. Don't you want to go run and play? And at the end, they say, you know, thanks. The kid says thanks and hands him a slip of paper. And that slip of paper says, hey, you worry about me, but not yourself. Uh, you know, um, if you're interested in quitting, call this this quit line. And, and what I love about that campaign is it recognizes information is not the problem, right? The smokers list all the reasons to the kids why smoking is a bad idea. Smokers are not smoking because they thought smoking was a good idea. <laughs> and so if you have an information problem, information can be a great solution. But too many problems are not information problems. Many more problems that we think are information problems are actually a different sort of problem. And so just giving people more facts and figures isn't going to solve it. We got to figure out a different way. So getting back to the mask question, what if it's not about telling people wear masks, damn it, what, what, <laughs> what's the way to reduce the barriers? What's yeah. The but I mean, imagine something like the following, right? So so let's go back to this idea, sort of what the, the Thai smoking campaign did. Um, it's what I'll call highlighting a gap. Doesn't tell people what to do, points out a gap between attitudes and actions. You said that I shouldn't smoke, yet you are smoking. I'm going to leave it at that. Do you do you want to do something about it or not? Right? People have, um, as your audience probably well aware, sort of internal consistency pressures. Mm -hmm. They want to feel consistent. They want their attitudes and their actions to match up. If I say I care about the environment, I better recycle. If I uh, tell a kid not to smoke, I better not smoke myself. And when those things are at conflict, they do work to resolve it. They try to resolve that dissonance, which in this case means either telling the kid to smoke or not smoking themselves. And so think about the same thing with masks. Rather than telling people, hey, wear a mask or hey, go get vaccinated, you could say something like, hey, um, you know, imagine your elderly parents or grandparents were around. Imagine your little kids were around. Would you want other people to wear masks? Right? Would you want other people to be vaccinated? Um, again, 
that question only works if we think the answer is yes. Mm. But if we think most people would say, well, of course, yeah, if you were around my elderly parents, I definitely want you to wear a mask. I definitely want you to be vaccinated. Okay, great. Well, then why aren't you getting vaccinated? Mm. Right? Might it be a good idea for you to get vaccinated? So again, not telling them what to do, but asking them the right questions that sets up that you know internal inconsistency in their mind and encourages them to resolve it. Note, it's not any question. There are lots of questions. You know, do you want to wear a mask? That would be a bad question. But it's about picking the right. Do you want to get vaccinated? Many people may not want to, but when they think about it, wow, I want to protect my family. I want to protect my elderly parents. Now maybe it seems like a better idea to go ahead and do yeah. it. Hey, you bring up Kurt Lewin a few times in the book and also highlight um, force field analysis in the appendix. And so, you know, uh, Lewin was doing his work back in the 40s and 50s. And this is a total aside. I'm, I'm, I'm breaking from, from our conversation we just had. But, but I'm wondering, why do you think or do you have any ideas why his ideas might not have taken hold as much as they probably should have? Because I think there's some really interesting pieces of his work that it just hasn't translated into the general public. Yeah, so so you know, I Lewin was one of the things I actually started this book with, and it um, it he sort of his prominence in the book kind of dissipated as drafts went on, okay. uh, based on sort of publisher feedback and other things. But he was sort of a guiding light for me in, in writing this. You know, I took um, uh, graduate level social psychology from Lee Ross and Mark Lepper, sort of two um, uh, two uh, huge luminaries in the field, uh, and they talked a lot about Kurt Lewin. They talked a lot about tension systems, um, and I I love that idea. If you actually look at sort of empirical research on tension systems, yeah. um, there's not as much empirical research out there because it's more of sort of a, a systems approach, mm-hmm. which is challenging to sort of do. Um, but I think at the core, his his insight is very much right. Um, you know, uh, when we're trying to get people to do something, there are forces in both directions. Um, uh, if we just add forces in one direction, that may not be enough because if one of the restraining forces is people themselves uh, not liking being told what to do, they'll just add something to, you know, meet us halfway. Uh, but if we can mitigate some of those restraining forces, that actually may be much more uh, effective. And so um, I agree, it's, it's sad to see that some of those ideas have not uh, had more of a, a lifespan. Hopefully this book has helped um, uh, give them a little bit more attention, but I think they're extremely powerful and uh, very useful. Is it possible to get one more question in about what's on your playlist right now? You know, uh, I have uh, an almost one-year-old, and in, in terms of what's on my playlist, it's, it's mainly listening to the baby monitor, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, otherwise, you know, I listen to, to anything on there. Um, we've actually been doing some research on uh, music lately and sort of what makes music successful. We did a fun paper uh, looking at how second-person pronouns, uh, essentially the word you, uh, songs that have you in them more often actually do better on the billboard charts. Uh, so think about, you know, Whitney Houston singing, I will always love you or Queen singing, we will rock you. These songs make us think about either loved or disliked ones in our own life, uh, which make the song seem more relevant to us and make us like them more. And so I am uh, parsing songs differently than I used to based on this recent research, but uh, yeah. Fantastic. You have been a fantastic guest, Jonah. We really appreciate your time and your insights and- And uh, talking about the baby monitor as well. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Grooving Session, where Tim and I groove on what we heard with our conversation with Jonah, talk about a lot of other interesting things, and have a conversation about whatever comes into our 
catalyst type minds. Yeah, yeah, the catalyst minds. I, I, I love that. Of course, Jonah's got a real ability with um, this this focus that he has on taking uh, cool concepts and then boiling them into really kind of clever ideas. Uh, so I know that that sounds silly to take a cool concept and boiling it into a clever idea, but. I think that he uses really good research This is the foundation for everything. And he does a really great way of expressing it and communicating it. That's really what I'm trying to say. But Kurt, what do you want to start with? Well, I think there's a lot that we could talk about. I mean, even though we had a really short time with, with Jonah, there was a lot of information included in that conversation. Yep. But really the piece that I liked is just this idea that persuasion isn't about pushing more facts or more reasons or more information about why people should come around to your point of view, oftentimes it's about removing some of the barriers, really understanding yeah. what it is that where they where they are and what's what's in their way of coming. Why aren't they why aren't they thinking this already? Why aren't they already buying your products? Why aren't they already having the same uh, opinion on whatever it would be that you do, and then fill, filling in those areas of saying, all right, so what are the barriers from them to from going from point A to point B? Yeah. If, if we ask the question, why aren't they doing what I want them to do? Then we kind of have to ask the question, why are they doing what they are already doing? Right. And this reminds me of an early conversation with James Heyman when he's like, from a behavioral science perspective, we have to start with what is the current behavior? If we if we are imagining a behavior change environment, a behavior change initiative, we have to start with understanding why are we doing what we are doing now, right? We have to start there. And I think that that's one of the, maybe the most important things that uh, is underrated when it comes to behavior change analysis and design is really getting a feel for the the current situation the context and the environment in which behaviors are Im, are emerging from right, right. It, it's that understanding the the behavior we we often in business we often know what the behavior is that that is going on that we want to change they're doing x and we want them to do y but do we understand why right. they're doing x right yeah. rarely to to your point what's What's the context? What's the environment? What's the inside environment inside their brain, the mindset that they have? What is the emotional appeal for doing X? Why, why are these people doing that and understanding that why? Because if you never understand that why and you try to get move people from X to over to, to where you're getting to, you're, you're going to hit and miss as much as you are just randomly, right? You're, you're going to not really understand what it is. You can use the best behavioral informed decisions. Oh, let's use loss aversion. Let's use the social proof statement. Let's do this. But if we don't really understand what it is and why they're doing what they're doing, none of that is going to really have the impact that it could have if you really understood it. So you could address those specific contextual areas and those specific motivational areas. Yeah, I would specifically point to marketers and sales leaders and HR leaders who I think are using a lot of system one thinking that they're kind of, they're sort of winging it when it comes to, well, we want more people to sign up and they're not signing up because guess what? They don't have enough information. And Jonah's point is, 
information can be the problem, but in a, in many situations, more information does not solve the problem because information wasn't the problem. Lack of information wasn't the problem in the first place. Right. Most smokers know they 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 shouldn't smoke. Right. It's it's the GI Joe fallacy. It is literally, you know, if we give people more information, that's going to change their behavior, and it's not. Information in and itself usually doesn't drive behavior change. It's other things that do. And so yeah. you have to under, understand that. And I really loved uh, in his book, he gets into it more. And we talked a little bit about it at the very end is is Kurt Lewin. And he bases a lot of the the work that he's talking about from some of Lewin's stuff and particularly yeah. the force field yeah. analysis, which is really this idea that, hey, you can, you know, it, behavior, when you're looking at it, it, it's these two forces that there's these forces pushing you forward. And then there's these forces that are pushing against that. So he calls that it's drive force, driving forces versus restraining forces. And Lewin's work really is, is interesting because again, if you think about that, right, if you're, you're sitting in a chair, you know, you're, you're sitting in the chair because gravity is pulling you down, but the chair structure is forcing you up. And so those are the two forces that you have. You right. know, if you, if you weaken the force that's holding you up, the chair is going to break, right? If you, you saw a little bit off of the leg, you know, weaken that chair somehow. Or if you keep pounding, you know, adding more people on top of your lap and on top of your lap, on top of your lap, pretty soon the gravitational force is going to be so strong, that's going to break it and you're going to move. But, you know, until you're not, you're in equilibrium. And when you're in that equilibrium state, that's kind of where you are. And oftentimes we just think, you know, it's easier to, to move by keep putting more people and more people and more people and more people on your lap. When in fact, you know, it's a lot easier to move. And, and this is a horrible example. I, I'm realizing that now as I'm talking about yeah, this. Yeah, the visual is really overwhelming. It's, it's you, more, you don't more, really, more people on my lap. Actually. Yeah, well, well, not that. But then you also, you're crashing down. But, you know, really, if you wanted to move... Um, you, you know, from that perspective, it's probably easier to just, you know, maybe, you know, make a little cut in, in each of the legs or in one of the legs of that chair that will, that's easier to do than getting more people on top and on top and on top. And again, I apologize for the bad analogy, but the, the idea is there is that oftentimes it's not about pushing people, giving them more motivation to do something. It's reducing the friction or whatever it is that is holding them back. From right. making that right. change. Right. Yeah. I was going to go into a Wallace and Gromit thing with stacking the sheep, but I, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> That's a much better, that's a much better uh, visual than having people on top of everybody's life. But, you know, I, I love Kurt Lewin. I mean, yeah. why wouldn't I? I would, I would definitely love Kurt Lewin just because he has a great first name and he, <laughs> he taught at the University of Iowa, my alumni, you know, so of course and I'm going to love him damn smart he's but really he was you know and yeah i mean just think i i love i mean I, I, t to this day i still use his behavior equation again it's more of a heuristic than a, an actual equation but behavior is a function of the person and their environment and so you know tim we talk about context matters all the time he was the first to really identify that so look it's it's this function between the person who they are their motivations their you know personality what what their likes and dislikes are their energy level, all of those things, but it's also a function of their environment. What's the context that right. they are within all of those factors. So hey, if you haven't, if you haven't looked at Kurt Lewin, just Google him. There's some great work out there and, and it's easily accessible. And he's done some really cool research on, on all that stuff. We'll include some links in the show notes. 
to, to right. make yeah, there you to, go. to make that a little bit easier. I also wanted to talk about something that I thought was particularly clever that Jonah brought up was was barrier blindness. And what, how, what, what is barrier blindness, Tim? I don't know. I can't see it. I don't know. But it is a fantastic concept, right? When he said that we we are likely to fall prey to this blindness of the barriers that are actually inhibiting us as well as others to to make changes. And and that fortifies this idea that we need to investigate why it is that we're doing what we're doing right now, right? Mm -hmm. That we have to call attention to why people are doing what they're doing. And without that, we're just going to continue more than just blind spots, but really a a blindness about the barrier specifically. Right. Well, it's interesting because we all have our own personal blind spots about why we do what we do and and even how we act. We think we act one way and others, if you were to ask them, they would say, no, you're acting totally different from what that is because of the nuances of how we interpret things and different elements of that nature. But what I found really unique about this is it's that idea that we can't even see the barriers when they're in front of us, but even when they're in front of other people. So it's really difficult to identify what those barriers are from getting people to change, which means you have to do a lot of really hard research. You have to do a lot of uncovering and getting past that open that that top layer, particularly if you're working in a business and you're saying, oh, well, we did a survey and this is what people said. Well, that survey is that top layer. It's really not the underlying cause of what is going on in many instances. So, you have to look and get at the real root that, that understand because people don't understand their own barriers and it's hard to look at other barriers. So, you really have to dig in deep and peel back that onion per se. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we don't understand our own motivations very well either, and that's a really uh, critical part of this. Uh, I also wanted to uh, to talk just a little bit about the Tide Pod Challenge, just to say, you know, it it, it ended badly. It it didn't. It never really went all that great for Tide. And I was thinking, well, what could they have done if they had applied uh, a catalyst? Right uh, in in the reduce model, if they had applied something of not just reactants, knowing that reactants is going to be a big problem, because they use Gronkowski to act as an authority messenger that they thought that the kids would listen to, and and that didn't work. You know, they could have actually used kids. They could have actually used more similar uh, kids. They could have level le- uh, leveraged uh, like the consensus model. You know, mm-hmm. to, to say everybody uh, in my group doesn't do it. You know, right. people, all the kids that I know aren't doing this because it's stupid. It's it's for laundry. It's not for for popping. You know, but there there could have been other models that they that Tide used. Well, and as, I think, and I don't remember if Jonah mentioned this or not, but it's it's the element of saying it's not telling them not to do this, yeah. but it's 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 pointing out, hey, this is a stupid thing to do. You can go do it, but that's that's dumb, and you're going to get ridiculed for it. Um, in, in what you're talking about. I think there's aspects of this that, you know, Todd, Tide Pods are, are doing well right now and, and we don't hear about the, the pod challenge anymore. And I think there's a part of it that, you know, they, they were trying to get out in front of something and, and oftentimes, you know, they just put more light on it, which actually made the problem worse, which right. sometimes you kind of have to go, is it better to to work kind of 
underground and and do things, but not be so um, in the spotlight with things. But then, you know, they were trying to do the right thing, which is the part that really gets me because I'm going, that feels like something, you know, I would have been in that's in those shoes. I would have might've done the same thing. So, you know, yeah. What Kurt, what else did you want to to talk about? What did you want to groove on here? With, um, uh, the conversation you know, with Jonah? There was a part where he, he talks about this and we, we mentioned this a little bit, right? Where there's a gap between attitudes and actions. Yeah. And he talked about it from the smoking perspective. And I love this, the story that he brings up of, of, you know, asking the, the, the small kid asking for a light and the people saying you shouldn't smoke and re- giving all the reasons. And then the kid handing him the, the sheet of paper that says you care about me, but why don't you care about yourself? Yeah. Really getting that self-reflection piece in there because they have those attitudes already. They, they know the information. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of times when that is indeed the case, but we just are so in the habit or ritual or delusional on, on ourselves that that uh, it just passes over. And so there isn't the cognitive dissonance that that happens when you do realize that your actions and your attitudes are different. And so if you never have that that angst that comes with that, that dissonance that comes with that, you're not going to drive any of that change. And I think I'm looking out at, at today's world of what's going on out in in the political world, but just in our world in general. And I think there's a lot of that going on where attitudes and actions are disparate and people just, you know, they're either rationalizing that away or they're ignoring it or it doesn't even come into their brain that this is this action that I'm taking is counter to the attitude that I, I, I believe. Yeah, uh, and and that dissonance is, it's hard to identify in us, right? Because we do such a good job of rationalizing and not being rational. Well, uh, and I mean, just, just to be a little bit more blunt on this, I mean, people who are talking about being patriots and, 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 and having this, you know, America first peace, and yet they are, you know, uh, breaking in to the Capitol and trying to usurp a democratic process that is going on, that if you just said, let's switch this, let's switch this to the other side, what would you believe if the other side was doing this? That would be a, a total, you know, chaotic mess. And right. that that right. is part of what's going on here in my, in my humble opinion. So, yeah. And I also wanted to make sure that we talked a little bit about music uh, because that you even though want we to talk about music, even oh though we God. had sort of this very short amount of time to talk about music, it was pretty fun that uh, Jonah quickly introduced this idea that songs with you in them are more popular than other songs. And there's, there's he, and he mentioned, I will always love you. That was mm-hmm. popularized by Whitney Houston, but, but we know was written by Dolly Parton. And was originally recorded by Dolly Parton in 1974. Yeah, and you you say that we know that, but I only know that because you just mentioned that. But <laughs> yes, yes, that's awesome. Well, it's it's a fantastic. It's like it was heartbreaking. I was in RCA Studio B where she recorded it in Nashville. Okay, and and they talked about the story about how she was singing it to Porter Wag- Porter Wagner was her 
both a paramour and business manager and mentor. And he was in the control room of the studio. And, and, sh- and she's like, I, you know, I wrote this song for you. And he's like, well, you just go and sing it, honey, or something like that. And so she's out in the live room singing it with just with tears streaming down her face to Porter Wagner in the control room. And I, I, it was just chilling to, to, to be in that space and just to, to think about that. Wow. Uh, where you've got this really power, because you know how powerful the song is. Um, but the th- cool thing about that song is it's one of a very small number of songs that has hit the charts in five decades. So Dolly Parton made it popular in 1974. It was also uh, re-released in 1982. Uh, and made the charts. Then Whitney Houston records it in 1992 for the movie, The Bodyguard. Okay. It, it charts then. She re-releases it in 2000, or the, the the movie gets re-released in like 2005. It charts then. And then in 2012, it also charted. So in five different decades, that that album, that's not that album, but that one single has charted, which is a remarkable thing for one, the, the life one of one. Song. Yeah. That is a great, That that's a great, Background story. What I found interesting is that Jonah had had research on music. Yes, you know, that he's doing research on music. That I'm like going, oh my god, here he goes, and yeah. and it was so relevant to what we're doing. So, yeah. Tim, what is your most uh, downloaded song? <laughs> You're setting me up. I I do my most downloaded song is a song called "Thinking About You." Thinking about who? You. Who? Yeah. Oh, not who, about you. Yeah. I'm thinking about you all the time. Thinking about love, gonna make it shine. Thinking how time, gonna change our life. Thinking about you, baby, all the time. Maybe, maybe we should rename this behavioral use. You Behavior know. you, yes. <laughs> Behavior grooves for you. For you. There we go. I have a subtitle for you. Okay. And I wonder if that works in, in non-music things. There we go. Well, there we go. Anyway, a fascinating conversation with Jonah and just yeah. really appreciate him taking time. It was a really busy, he's getting ready for classes and, and other things. And so it was a real uh, pleasure to that he would even be able to find the time to talk to us. So uh, thank you, Jonah. And uh, if people you know, found this interesting, let us know. We, we definitely want to uh, get out there and I really read the book. It's a, it's a fantastic book. So yeah. And hang out. We've got uh, Kurt's going to lead a bonus track and groove idea for the week in just a second. This is Kurt with our bonus track and groove idea for the week. When we talked with Jonah, We were reminded of how clever he is to frame much of our work in non-scientific terms and to focus on ways to help us with one thing we want dearly in life, to persuade other people to do what we want. Lee Iacocca, who was chairman and CEO of Chrysler Automotive Corporation for many years in the 1970s and 80s said, you can do the work of two people, but you can't be two people. Instead, you have to inspire the next guy down the line and get him to inspire his people. At its heart, this is what persuasion is. Jonah said that removing barriers was the most effective way to get people to fall in line rather than pushing more facts and more figures on them. 
we can report that his concepts are well-researched and based on years of study. And that leads us to the groove idea for this week. The next time you find yourself in a situation where you're asking someone to do something and they're not doing it, say you're asking your kids to finish their homework or trying to get your coworker to focus more on the things that they need to complete for your project rather than something else, start by asking the question Jonah teed up. Why won't this person do what you're asking them to do? Why are they doing what they're currently doing? And why is it preferred to what you're asking of them? See what you can come up and give it a try. Then let us know how it turns out. And we'd love to hear from you, particularly on that homework uh, example, because I need help with that with my kids. And with that, Groovers, it's time to end our episode with Jonah Berger. We hope that this week you take this information and go out and find your groove.